0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 385, part one of my conversation with the founder of Enso Sounds, Denver, Colorado-based sound bath specialist as well as percussionist Aaron Levy. We'll get back to them shortly. The semester rushes on faster than ever. All classes are moving along quickly, and we're in the midst of grad school auditions, and leadership team interviews for next year's Marching Mizzou. We'll be continuing this interview process for a while, but what's always enjoyable is getting to know these students who want a leadership position in the organization better, which is nice when you're trying to count for about 350 members of the group. But those are going well, and we will have a busy march going forward with Marching Mizzou, and I'll tell you about that At a later date. But for right now, let's get to our conversation with Aaron Levy. I'm meeting Aaron for the first time, and I'm thrilled they're up for being on the show. I'll be honest, it took a little bit of work for me to get in touch with Aaron. I went through their Bandcamp page and found some contact info and got in touch, which then came through a follow up on one of the social media platforms from Aaron. So, I mean, it took a bit more than usual, but we made it work, and I'm glad we did. I was aware of Aaron through the fact that they were presenting at PASIC 2023, and I nearly got in touch with them about being on the show then. However, as it happens, the PASIC preview dance card for this podcast filled up quickly, so we're getting to it now. Aaron's been involved in the percussion world for a long time, and is now recently doing a lot of work in the sound bath community in Denver, Colorado. You'll hear more about this in the interview, but they're in an area of the country that has quite a demand for what Aaron does, and you'll learn about it here. Additionally, Aaron's been in the academic world as well, going all the way through to get their doctorate, as well as teaching and performing in the percussion world in many of the common spaces we cover in this show. So there's that to get to. And there's so much to cover that we're splitting it up over two episodes. So this week in part one, we'll get to Aaron's current career in the sound bath world, growing up in Canton, Ohio, their years in drum corps, as well as their undergraduate and master's degree years, and freelancing in the Indianapolis area. Next week in part two, we'll get to the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 6th, 2024, That begins right now. Aaron, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and items that you do related to percussion as they are at this point.
1: Uh, I play a lot of gong sound baths. Um, Gongs and singing bowls, wind chimes are, you know, that kind of species of instruments, if you will. Uh, is my my biggest connection right now. I play about once uh, uh, public sessions about once every other week, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the the time frame, time of year. Um, but I'm playing in yoga studios, playing private sessions in people's homes, playing in my home in this in this room I'm in right now. For anywhere uh, for private sessions for one on one, all the way up to. I think the most recent group I had that was pretty large was around 40 or 50 people. Yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of sound meditations right now. That is, that is my, my bag right now. How long have you been, has this been the focus of what you do? Um, I started playing sound baths primarily right before the pandemic, literally right before, like a couple months before right around the, the turn of 2019, 2020 I started spending a lot more time uh, playing soundscapes and sound meditations before I grew my gong collection on, you know, I was playing just on on any kind of sustaining sounds. Yeah, so probably about five, five years now, about
0: four or five years. How does one get into this line of work? Hmm.
1: (laughs) That's a, that's a great question. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to get here. I think I encounter, I live in Denver, and I encounter a lot of people in our large spiritual community that play sound baths uh, with singing bowls or gongs or hand pans, lots of different instruments. It's more and more common out here, I think, since the pandemic. Just
0: because of space, like, because there's open spaces and places for that to happen maybe not i guess maybe not denver as much i I think
1: denver denver uh what it does have primarily is a really big spiritual community i think historically like denver and san francisco are two really big like hippie culture towns that people think of so that you know yoga communities spiritual community is really really big here there's a yoga studio you know as common as starbucks or subway here so there's just a, there's a lot of avenues. There is a lot of opportunities. And I don't know what happened around the pandemic, but more and more people, maybe it was the, you know, like the stimulus money, but more and more people were, were buying crystal bowl sets um, and embarking on that journey of uh, what, what they know as sound healing. So I see a lot of people uh, essentially doing what I do uh, when it comes to my relation to percussion who have no formal music training. Um, not percussionists, not musicians, uh, even though they're playing music, they wouldn't consider themselves musicians. I know, you know, for, for myself, I came through music academia from, you know, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, all the way up. And, you know, I thought I was going to be a college professor and uh, I was for a time. And somewhere along the way, just kind of started shifting into playing more and more soundscape-like things and I think most most of us, most percussionists, are fascinated by really big, loud instruments. We, you know whether whether we, we admit it all or not is a different thing, but we love the big, loud stuff. Um, so I, I attached to gongs when I was really young. And then, you know, I went through a pretty uh, uh, life-changing couple of years, uh, 2019 2018, nineteen. Um, that kind of made me reevaluate a lot of uh, what I was doing in life, and I started playing more soundscapes. Like I mentioned right before the, the pandemic, I was playing a lot more soundscapes on the Western percussion instruments that I had, all of the like the music school stuff that I had acquired over the years. I moved to Denver in 2020, and when I drove out out here, I was living in Ohio before that. I actually stopped in a place in. Uh, called Gongs Unlimited, a warehouse in Lincoln, Nebraska, and picked up my first gong and just started accumulating them from there. And I think my Western-trained background influenced the soundscapes and, and the, the gong washes. So I, I kind of just stuck in it from there. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole lot of other reasons and ways that I got to doing what I'm doing. But I I think that's kind of the general of what pushed me in this direction or how one could get to this
0: direction. When someone brings you in, what kinds of things are you, do they have an expectation of what you do or do you, when they contact you, are you like, okay, this is what I, like, do you have to do a lot of educating uh, who's who's hiring you uh, sometimes. about what you do? Yeah, sometimes. I would say most
1: of the educating isn't to the person who's hiring me. They tend, the person who's hiring me, whether it's a one-on-one or like a yoga studio bringing me in, um, the person setting up the event tends to have a pretty strong idea of what this is, what I do. Now, there's very commonly somebody who has never seen the thing, heard the thing, they have no idea about it, um, they come to an event. My typical Friday night, uh, I play once a month at a local yoga studio. Typically, there I have between 12 and 18 people each session. Um, And I I would say probably two thirds to three quarters of them have never been to a sound session like that before. So there's a lot of educating that has to be done there, which I think is the most fun part of it for me, honestly. (laughs) I'm not an educator anymore, but. I think I'm not an educator in the career sense, but, you know, we'll always be, those of us who teach will always be teachers to some degree in life.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I hear that. What are the things that you, when you have someone who's, they've not encountered what you do, what are the things that they, kind of the typical questions that they ask, or what are the things you're like, I need to like show you what this is or something like that?
1: What I do has a couple different names kind of in in the world, in the community, um, most, most notable, I think most popular rather sound bath, Mm -hmm. I play sound baths, a similar phrase that has some good or negative feelings, depending on who you are, uh, is the phrase of sound healing Uh, that, that tends to grind some gears and, you know, ask some questions, um, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Uh, But that's, that's always a topic that's worth exploring and educating about. I think a lot of people who show up and have never done it or don't know about it, don't know what they don't know. Um, so the, the questions are usually, I've never done this. Uh, what in, uh, in, um, and then they just wait for me to talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't really know, they don't know what to ask. Right. <laughs> um, so I tend to encourage people, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that I talk about. I, you know, in my session, I, I have a little spiel, kind of backpacked, ready to go. One question is, what do I do? How how do I participate? How do I attend? You can sit. You can lie down. You can stretch. You can watch. You can close your eyes. It's totally up to the individual to make the session their own. Um, and typically in yoga studios. Uh, a lot of yoga studios have a bunch of yoga mats and like, cushions and blankets and all sorts of props that can be used. Um, so I encourage people to get a bunch of props to make themselves comfortable. Um, most people don't know how to make themselves comfortable if they've not done it before. Um, <laughs> so I typically encourage, you know, look around the room, see what other people are doing, get some inspiration. And if it looks comfortable, grab that prop and try and replicate it. A lot of people have this preconceived notion that uh, this is a meditation, right? And it is. It's, but what meditation means is lost on a lot of people. And for people who don't have a strong meditation practice, the single line that seems to kind of just like run as a thread common for most people is that uh, meditation means sit down and clear your mind of all thoughts. That's a really, really difficult thing for people to do, especially if they've They're not used to doing that. I have a strong meditation practice and I rarely clear my mind of all thoughts. So, and with that, mean like people think, okay, I'm supposed to lie down and I'm not supposed to move. It's an hour long session and I can't move. So once I'm there, I just got to be still. Even if I like, if I'm uncomfortable, can't move. If I have to go to the bathroom, can't move. So I, I educate on that. Like you, you should move, make yourself comfortable. If you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. In that comes a lot of permission, uh, in that you might be laying down, enjoying that super still sound where you don't hear anybody around you. And then somebody right next to you has to get up and go to the bathroom and they disturb you out of your space. Um, so one of the things that I like to talk about is sound is healing, Right. And the phrase sound healing tends to make people go. Especially, and I've noticed, especially a lot in like the Western percussion background that, and like, I, you know, as I said, I, I grew out of that. And I, you know, I was at PASIC a couple months ago and I, I talked about some of these these things that, you know, it's just, we say sound healing and a lot of Western percussionists are like, no. New age mumbo jumbo. That's all. And like, there, there is a lot of new age mumbo jumbo. There's tons of it. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is like, all of these musicians love making music. It yeah. feels good for their soul. But then you say sound healing and they're like, no, that's not real. But you're describing sound healing. And so the, the kind of comparison I draw is laughter is the best medicine. When anybody says that, nobody argues, right? Nobody's going to argue when you say laughter is the best medicine because they know what you're saying is, oh, you have the flu? Just cough it off. You, nobody's saying that or just laugh it off. Sorry. Um, nobody's telling you just to, to laugh off your flu or COVID, right? It's just, but we recognize that laughing feels good. It's a healing moment. Um, so for me, that's what sound healing Is there's speaking of the the new age mumbo jumbo, um, there's this talk of chakras, these are energetic circles and points in the body. And you'll find a lot of different claims, I'll say, that different chakras have different corresponding pitches. The interesting thing is, you can search on Google and find different sources saying that different chakras are different pitches. So it's kind of conflicting information right there. The the most common is that from from the bottom up, there's seven chakras in the the body. um, And from the bottom up, we look at it as diatonically, C-D-E-F-G-A-B. I lead a lot of uh, workshops where I'm teaching people how to play crystal bowls, um, especially out here in Denver where there's a lot of yoga teachers who have no musical background. I'm teaching them some basics of music theory. And one of the things that I do in that workshop is have people close their eyes. And I'll play, let's say, G on my crystal ball. I'll just drone on a G crystal ball. And that, according to these systems, is the throat chakra. And I ask people with their eyes closed to touch on their body where they feel this pitch resonating everybody's different, and almost nobody is touching the throat. And then I have them open their eyes and look around and say, okay, this is the throat chakra, quote, unquote. Does that mean that it's not going to affect your throat? No. If you feel it in your throat, right, what I encourage and when I am, what I do when I educate people on this is if you feel a certain pitch in a certain part of your body, tap into that. Think about that. Feel into that and what that might mean. I'm not going to come to a session and say, I'm going to play this bowl for you and expect to feel it at this point in your body because that's me prescribing this thing to you. And I don't, that doesn't feel authentic to me. And based on what I find when I do that experiment, um, it doesn't feel like it's true. So all sounds are healing in all parts of the body all crystal bowls, the person moving next to you. um, I always make a joke about, you know, all sounds are healing, including the person who's going to snore during this session, uh, because there's always one or two who just start snoring. So I like to encourage that those sounds also are healing. um, So we can kind of let go of this expectation that when I when I sit through this hour long session, I'm only going to hear these pretty gongs and bowls and other things. It was a long, long, longer explanation than I give the, the students at the beginning of a session, but that's all the education I, I, I like to include.
0: No, that's great. That's great. When you set up for your sessions, like I'm trying to imagine like how large of a setup is this? Is this all different sorts? And sizes of gongs and bowls that you're using, are you, have you like calibrated over the years, like, I like that one, that sound doesn't work with this? How have you kind of figured out the, the gear aspect?
1: I'm going to take a long, long road answer to that.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um,
1: I studied with Tim Feeney uh, when he was at University of Alabama, mm-hmm. and we did a lot of experimental sound stuff. And he liked to tease me a lot. Uh, because my setups were huge. Um, way too big. I, would, uh, I went on tour, I think, in 2016 through the Midwest and had just piles of gear. Drums and tables and all sorts of electronics and stuff. It was really silly. Um, and I never gave that up. <laughs> I... I tried really hard to like, pare it down, to figure out what I could do. Um, when, I fir- when I got my first gong, it was, okay, I'm going to use this gong and the other very sustaining metal sounds. Sustaining metals are a big, that's, that piques my attraction. Gongs, crystal bowls, uh, like the, the brass bowls, like the Himalayan singing bowls. Um, I use uh, like bamboo koshi chimes. These are, uh, not a lot of Western percussionists know about these. Uh, They're getting more popular. Um, They're like a wind chime, but they have, um, they're they're in a little bamboo cylinder and are filled with metal rods and have a really beautiful chord that speaks out of them. So at this point, I have 16 gongs. Uh, Well, 17. I don't use the 17th because it's a really, really big uh, halo gong, one of those like it's it's just like the outer ring. Right. Um there's no center of it. But I use 16 gongs. Biggest one um is a stainless steel 40 inch and then the smallest are th- uh, two eight inch opera gongs and an eight inch tie gong and everywhere in between. I have a, a seven seven piece set of tie gongs from eight inches up to twenty inches some wind gongs uh german gongs chow, a whole a whole gamut of stuff and then i typically set up a folding table to put my my bowls on just because i've i'm well i'm getting to the age where it's easier to not get up and down yeah. um i don't need to be, i don't need to be using my knees that much during a session when i can just have a table right there kind of to, to give you the dimensions the whole rig, uh, it's about, it's like a cube. I stand in the middle and I'm surrounded by all of my, my stuff just to make, you know, reach easier. It's about seven, sorry, seven feet wide, um, and six feet deep. And then 80 inches tall. I've got two, like two, two rows or like two stacks of gongs, bottom and top. So it's a pretty large setup. It doesn't take up a lot of room since you go high, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of components, um, but six by seven foot uh, footprint on the ground, um, which, you know, that obviously helps when I'm moving in and out of yoga studios that oftentimes don't have very much room. Yeah, it, uh, when I load in, it takes about an hour and a half to... Begin loading in, uh, like let's say I have a session at 7 o'clock. If I start hauling stuff in at 5.30, I'll be ready to open the doors for guests to come in at uh, 6.45. So about an hour and 15 minutes or so to load in and set everything up. Um, and then about the same hour and 15 minutes to tear down after the session. Um, so It's a, it's a pretty uh, convenient process, um, but it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of heavy gear to cart around. <laughs> yeah. We chose the knife though, didn't we?
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> you didn't give that part up apparently.
1: Yeah, no, I, I moved away from Western percussion but kept all the heavy,
0: huge gear. Right. <laughs> right. You still have the uh, the Steve Schick-ness of it to – <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i won't i won't get any smaller there anytime soon that's uh thanks for saying that that's a name i haven't heard in a while uh, <laughs> now that i only play gong meditations and <laughs> a name i haven't heard in a while appreciate
0: <laughs> it i had becca larito you know her i
1: maybe not personally okay. uh, but i yeah i i i think i don't know if we're friends on facebook or we follow each other on instagram
0: where but yeah yeah because i i Talked to her a couple of years ago, and and she's very much in this in this world. As well. She's a she's a uh, you know orchestral per- percussionist, but this has become like a major part of her life. Right. The sound healing world, and one of the things that she loved that she talked about, I wonder if. Uh, if you've encountered this as well, she's just like, I was around all these people who didn't know how to play these instruments <laughs> and get like a good sound out of them. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, oh, that was almost one of the ways you came in. She's like, I can like, I can make all of you better at this actually.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, that's, that's a really good point and talking point. I, uh, I'm, I, I, I love giving workshops, On that kind of, on, on playing, um, because there are so many people who, you know, have great intuition or have great musical knowledge, uh, in their head, but don't, don't actually know what any of it is. Like they can, they can sing really well, but they don't, they don't know what a major triad is. Sure. And, you know, a lot of crystal bowl sets right now are coming in colors. So like the, the, the C is red. D is orange. So a lot of these players are just saying, "Okay, I'm, I, I like I like when I play red, orange, and green together. That sounds beautiful." But what does that mean, though? Like you learn what that is and wow. learn how to move in and out of it. Learn. I see. I see a lot of crystal bowl people who are playing crystal bowls who don't even think about you know like I, I think back to like my undergrad where we had a lot of alexander technique influence mm-hmm. um and i see people drone on a crystal ball and there's a lot of ways to hold a crystal ball mallet like you can there's not one right way to do it like most things in music however i see a lot of players who don't have musical training who will go play and their elbow is sticking way up in the air yeah. and they are just gripping the mallet like it's you know holding a tight fist and I'm like, you're relax your body. Listen to your body. Is, is this, is, is that comfortable to have your elbow up there? Just relax. If now, wow. if your elbow is there, maybe change how you're holding the mallet so you can feel more comfortable. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a big lack of awareness in ha- how to make music and how to learn. Um, and not, not to be too capitalistic about it, um, but there is a market for that. As I said, I'm, I miss, to a degree, uh, being an educator. So being able to teach sound healing techniques, crystal bowl techniques, gong techniques, um, that's a really, really big part of what I love and what I hope to you know, make, a, make a living out of, honestly.
0: Uh, let's back up. Aaron, where did you grow up? I grew up
1: in Northeast Ohio, uh, in Canton, um, home of the Football Hall of Fame, where every middle school takes ten field trips to. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> like, uh, you know, everybody who's not from Canton says, "Oh, that, that's that's where the Hall of Fame is." Right. Everybody from there is like, "Yep, I've been there too many times." Yeah, very <laughs> really boring to me at this point. <laughs> That's um, funny. Yeah, but I, I'm I,
0: glad because I, 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 in my head, I'm like, "Don't say it, don't say it." it was
1: like, <laughs> I've, I've learned to say it before people can now.
0: Smart. I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Canton, had a really, really powerful um musical upbringing. Uh, my, my older brother, he's three years older than me. He started playing violin when he was five. My earliest memories in life involve somebody taking lessons in my house. I was, I think I tried violin when I was five or so. Um, I was playing percussion by fourth grade. And in middle school, I, uh, it was actually a really lucky coincidence that uh, my, my middle school band director was Bill Hamilton, who at the time was uh, one of the executives at the Bluecoats Coats and B. Corps. Oh, wow. uh, so that was just like immediately kind of leveraged myself into like drum corps world. So like during, during high school, I was getting really, really into marching band and drum core, you know, graduated high school and uh, left the next day for Glassman tour. Um, March drum corps. you know, my first two years out of high school, Northeast Ohio is like running, run, runs thick for me. <laughs> um, and then, uh, I, I went down to Southeast Ohio and went to Ohio university uh, and studied, uh, percussion performance with Roger Braun, where f- funny enough, looking back, uh, you know, now I do a lot of, you know, avant-garde experimental music, sound bath, you know, just kind of wash things. Um, but I, I remember, I remember, I think I was a junior in my undergrad, uh, a great friend of mine, Aaron Butler, asked if I would play on a performance of N.C. Um, hmm. I was like, nah, I don't play that crap. <laughs> I made fun of it. I thought it was stupid. Um, uh, oh, the things we don't know when we're young. Yeah, so luckily I, I, learned, I, learned, <laughs> I learned better and started much more appreci- appreciating uh, Terry Riley and all, all sorts of minimalist and avant-garde musics.
0: What did you play? In Xeon, was, were you playing like vibes or something? Uh, at that point, I didn't play on it. Oh, okay. um, oh you, you skipped it. I didn't. Yeah, I said, no, thanks.
1: That's not ah, for me. Um, yeah, as, as, a young, as a young junior, I was like, that's not for me. I'm not doing that. At this point, I, I don't know how many times I've played it and played different things mm-hmm. uh, from program synthesizers to playing bells to drum kit on on like, you know, uh, fun bar performances. When I lived in Indianapolis, we, we did some cool showings of NC.
0: As long as you don't have the piano part, then you're fine.
1: Yeah. Well, well, also, no, I've done, I've done that on glockenspiel. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's almost more annoying. Um, <laughs> you get a, you get, your arm gets a little bit sore by the end of it. Of course. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's a good time.
0: <laughs> Backing up to uh earlier, what, what when you start playing percussion, is it just you're just like doing high school or you know middle school band kind of that direction? Did you take drum set as well? Or i, I started taking
1: lessons uh right away uh in fourth grade. Um so at like nine, nine 10 years old, I started studying privately. Sixth, seventh grade? Joined uh, the local youth orchestra, which you know now. Looking back, I, I now realize that it was—it's a lot of string orchestra stuff for youth orchestra because percussion and wind players are usually pretty scarce. Um, so I was very bored a lot uh, as a young percussionist at that time. I never—I took drum set lessons, but I never really latched onto it. I could do the job. That was—that was about it. I, I, like, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't great at it. So when, when middle school jazz bands started becoming a thing, I remember, I think, in my middle school jazz band, there were three or four drummers. That's and I quickly, I quickly was like, I'm the worst one here. I, I was a great young percussionist. If there was mallets, on it. But drum set, no. It just wasn't my thing. And I, I knew I wanted to participate in jazz band a lot more. Uh, so I started taking trombone lessons. Um, Oh,
0: okay. That's not, I didn't think that was where that was going. (laughs) Um,
1: so I, I played a lot of trombone, uh, in jazz band for some reason, gravitated towards the low end and played a lot of bass trombone. Mm, Yeah. Um, And then it's always a, it's always a funny story. Uh, you know, I mentioned I was really bored as a young orchestra player, in you know, in youth orchestra with those percussion parts, so I, I made the decision to be less bored and play bass trombone in youth orchestra. <laughs> I think you get two more notes, maybe. Yeah, um, it's it's. <laughs> I didn't really do much more, but I did get to sit down the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, um, you take your wins where you can get it. Absolutely, I, I yeah. It was it was a good time. Um, <laughs> but yeah so and then once I got into high school my private lessons kind of spread out a lot um my original teacher I studied with from nine years old until I graduated high school um but when I was a junior I started taking secondary private lessons with my marching percussion instructor um because I knew I wanted to be in drum corps so I was taking quad lessons Mm and occasional bass drum lessons just you know trying to be a better marching percussionist i guess my last year of high school i did uh post-secondary um and i know not that's i I think i've come to learn that's pretty regional um so post-secondary i was in high school but i was taking classes at the local college and i was getting high school credit and college credit at the same time Uh Um, so i was taking college like freshman music theory as a senior in high school um, I was in the, the, like the community wind band there, and I was also taking percussion lessons from that percussion instructor. Um, so, yeah, my senior year of high school, I was taking percussion lessons from three different instructors. It was a lot. It was really, really ambitious. You know, I, It was like drum set, all-around percussion lessons, mallet-focused focus, lessons, and then marching-focused lessons.
0: Nice. Yeah, you know, uh, normally we, we call that North Texas,
1: but. Right.
0: Yes. Right. But as a senior in high school. Yes, exactly. It
1: was, it was, it was intense. And I did, I did an audition at North Texas. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember going to audition at North Texas and uh, being a giddy senior marching percussionist and Paul Rennick was out at a drum corps camp and was not there for my audition. And I was
0: very sad about it. Hmm. Yeah. Them's the breaks, Aaron. Oh, that's great. While you were in high school, were you doing anything else? Did you were involved in like sports or athletes or student government or anything else that was filling out your time?
1: I was really big into drama. Um, Oh, okay. I I was a theater kid. Um, All right. Yeah, I, I thought too hard about that when I did a lot of theater. I li- if I wasn't in the band room, I was in the theater room. You could find me in one of those two rooms all of high school.
0: Mm. Uh, Doing yeah. and, and this is like not like musicals or plays or both. Um, more uh, not as much like pit
1: musical playing. Um, okay. I, didn't, I did I did some of that like once I was in college and such. Uh, but in high school, um, no, I started. I actually started acting on stage when I was five years old. Oh, um, all right was consistently involved with some theatrical production, whether at like the local community theater or through school in some regard. Um, I did a lot of, you know, I was on stage. I did a lot of technical work. So I built a lot of stages as well. Um, Yeah. So in high school, I was, I was especially as, as, as a senior, if Aaron didn't show up for class again, they were probably out in the in the drama room, hanging out, building something. You know, being being a little a little class skipper, right? Yeah. You know.
0: Well, at least they they knew where you were. At least they knew where
1: I was. Yeah. Um, I wasn't off campus anywhere, but I usually was not where I was supposed to be.
0: You and we put this in quotes. Lost track of time, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was working on this project. I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> just, you know, that's when you ask the drama teacher, "Can you write me a note?" I don't want to right. go to
0: English. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, these stairs aren't going to build themselves. All right. So, you yeah. know, so
1: there we are.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about more about the musical situation at Ohio and uh, studying with Roger.
1: Uh, yeah. What a, what a great time. I learned so much in those four years. Roger Braun, uh, is a very very well-rounded percussion educator. You know, one of the things that I like to look back on as I as I went through like my bachelor's, master's and then doctorate, um as I think we tend to hope the degrees do they got more and more focused. Master's had a much stronger focus than my bachelor's, doctorate similar more focused than master's and bachelor's. But my bachelor's gave me such a like it opened the door for all of the different possibilities of master's degrees, you know, ensemble playing, whether it be wind ensemble or orchestra. We also had a jazz percussion ensemble, which was pretty unique uh, to that school, nine percussionists and a bass player um, oh. playing a lot of Latin jazz tunes um, and a lot of other stuff too. But that, that was primarily where, where we sat. So it was, it was really cool. Cause that's like a, it's a band setting. Right. It's it's not like it didn't feel like chamber music, though. If you if you wanted to, you know, like tighten your tie about it, you could call it chamber music. Um, But It's a band. So, you know, I got to participate in that for, uh, I think, three years. It's just a really great experience. Um, Roger does a lot of uh, Cuban percussion, um, Mm. which is was great for me as a Cuban individual. I, I knew about all of these Cuban musics growing up, um, but like didn't know. I didn't know what made them happen or how to play them. Um, so when I studied with Roger, I, I got to do a, a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, I, getting more and more exposed to world musics, Cuban music, uh, music of Ghana. Uh, Roger was really big into music of Ghana as well. Uh, I studied with Pascal Young, uh, the African music professor at uh, Ohio University. Um, I got to tour with him in Taiwan, uh, for a couple weeks in 2011. Um, but before that in uh, 2009, I remember just getting a random email through the, you know, the the percussion community grapevine that just got pushed to everybody. Um, I got this random email from this random, this random person, Jason Koontz. I don't know who he is at this point. um, (laughs) Uh, looks like he teaches somewhere in Kentucky. Um, oh, but he's leading a two week percussion intensive trip to Brazil. Oh, and at that point I had marched two years of drum corps and I was a little tired of spending my whole summer on the road in the heat playing vibraphone. It was a lot. Um, so I, I made the decision in 2009 to go on this trip to Brazil and study more different musics that I wasn't aware of as a, as a young, you know, 20, 20 year, year old or so. And, you know, Roger encouraged that. I and mean, it was during the summer. So, you know, he wasn't, I wasn't missing anything, but he really, really encouraged that kind of outside study. That was the summer leading into my junior year. Um, and my junior and senior year largely started to be shaped into Cuban and Brazilian music as a big focus. Um, And Roger supported that, helped me write a lot of documents for projects and things. Yeah, a really, really great, well-rounded experience that kind of opened the doors to the the rest of my percussion career, if you will. And then, coincidentally, Jason Koontz, who took me on that Brazil trip, um, is the the professor at Eastern Kentucky University where I did my master's.
0: That's great. When you're there in undergrad, so you get this range of experience. Are you having to, or is Roger asking you to redo technique on everything, or is he kind of is he looking at wh- where you were at and being like, okay, that's pretty good. You haven't, you don't have much barrier here. You obviously explained all the experiences you were getting, particularly on the non-Western or non-like classical Western side. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did he approach kind of your skill set, if you remember? I think a really great. Gotta be
1: honest, that that's kind of hard to remember that far. <laughs> but I feel like it was a really good balance mm. because m- my technique changed a ton. I th- it's also important to recognize that 2007 and 2008, I was marching drum corps, and I was in front ensembles. Drum corps and WGI, I was in front ensembles with the same instructors. So I was playing that technique that right. kind of carried into everything. So a lot of what Roger was doing was, that's great. You can't play these instruments like that. You're going to break them. So there was a lot of adjusting of my technique. I do remember the biggest technique that he pretty much built uh, was my timpani technique. Um, hmm. That technique. I didn't have much timpani technique before him. I like, I had learned about it I'd studied a little bit with one of my teachers in high school. Um, but that's, that was something that he really kind of started for me. I would say most other techniques were altered and he respected where, <clears throat> excuse me, he respected where I was coming from, but definitely changed it to, to make sure I was approaching instruments with you know safety and care. Um, Cause those are things you don't always know about as a young percussionist, on, you know that this kind of playing can damage the instrument um, or your hands. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of influence, uh, like I mentioned earlier. There was a lot of Alexander technique uh, talk. I don't think we had a specific, like a, a certified instructor at our school, but there was a lot of that conversation that circled around. So people were always concerned with you know don't hurt yourself. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, technique fostering. I'd
0: say. Yeah. On the on the Alexander side, I sort of know what that means, but is it simply playing relaxed? Is it is it a specific thing that is – are there things that are similar from one player to the other or is it very much a um, here's a base and then we work with you to kind of fit what's going to work for you, I guess? I don't want
1: to pretend like I'm an expert on this
0: subject because I'm yeah. definitely
1: not. I, I do. I imagine that it's a bit different for each person, um, but I, I believe that the basis is the same. Um, and the general idea of Alexander technique is to to play in the most um, efficient way for your body, um, to be relaxed, to help your posture. A very obvious kind of point is, you know, for wind players, sit straight or stand. Don't yep. arch your back. Don't hunch over. You're going to restrict your breathing. Um, that's the most obvious kind of example. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of the gist. Um, and in our undergrad, you know, in those, um, like the weekly um, uh, music, music school wide, uh, like zero credit hour performance classes yeah. that
0: we convocate, whatever it's called, they it was like convocation. Prep yeah. Hour, convocation. yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Um, I remember like once a year, at least there was an Alexander technique professional who would come in and give demonstrations and a a long lecture. Um, and that was, that was the one that everybody went to every year.
0: I'm glad you said all that. One, my, my recollection was watching a, on the Alexander was someone was, was talking to a piano studio and they had a, um, like one of those giant balls that you like uh, bouncy balls that that you can like sit on, and so they would they would put that where the piano bench was, and the person had to kind of like bounce up and down, and then like, <laughs> and it was kind of fun to watch that because I was like, that looks really hard to do <laughs> to play yeah. piano like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It just it, it encourages a lot of mindfulness on your posture. Yeah, um, right. Because I can I can imagine just. You know, that kind of motion, if you're bouncing up and down, you have to think about keeping as much as you can your elbow down right, stationary so yeah. that you can play with proper, you know, uh, approach and technique.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cool, fascinating thing, um, especially trickles into, you know, what I, what I do now um, right. when, I, when I'm teaching non-musicians who don't care about tech- technique right technique and and i at this point in my life i don't care about technique yeah sure we'll hold, hold the mallet in a way that gets a good sound out of the instrument and right. feels good to you if you accomplish those things who
0: cares right yeah but when you do four mallet gong technique then we have some we have some things we have to discuss obviously
1: yeah right you know i haven't tried the four gong four mallet gong technique yet <laughs> it's coming oh. that's I hold a lot of gong mallets with like a triangle beater in the fourth mallet spot. So like ah, play gong and then get
0: a little ding here and there. Nice. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, so it's a hand balance issue is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So what was the change for you to go? Obviously. So you go to Eastern Kentucky. I said you go right after your, your undergrad there. Yeah, I went straight into my master's uh, from, from my bachelor's. So what's the, what's the focus of that program, and are you involved with an assistantship while you're there?
1: Yeah, I, I had an assistantship. Um, I was teaching, uh, teaching and writing for the drumline, mm-hmm. um, which was a great time. I did some writing before that Uh, I worked with a high school marching band and did some of their writing, um, but they also hired an outside writer. So I was mainly doing like small rewrites. Um, But in my master's degree, I really started, you know, like I I wrote all the drumline parts and this is an old school drumline that at that time was still using mylar drum heads, Mm -hmm. which was super fun to hear that big chunky sound out of the snare line. Their focus was, very, very non-Western. They had a massive steel band, um, a really big Brazilian uh, batucada ensemble, a lot of, uh, also a lot of uh, West African influence, kind of keep in the in the same family of uh, kind of percussionists. Um, Jason Kuntz did his doctorate at West Virginia, mm. where Pascal Young, my African professor at Ohio, used to teach. Um, yeah. So we 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 kind of both had a similar lineage there. So I was teaching the marching band. I was uh, I was assistantship within the percussion studio. So I was teaching. Um, I was leading you know one percussion ensemble piece a semester or so. Leading leading rehearsals anytime you know, Jason was out of town or something like that. Yeah, really really big focus on non-western music specific, specifically steel band um we did a lot of steel band tours um went out to virginia beach one time that was a two-year program and then actually after after that master's degree i stayed there because jason uh took us about so that was the perfect opportunity to kind of m- apply and move into that position so i actually uh the year after my master's, I was the percussion professor um, for one year at Eastern Kentucky. Um, so we did a lot of, got to have a lot of experience kind of just like hanging out in the same place for three years um, and then kind of
0: running the helm for one. Dif- similarities, differences, and I understand one is an undergrad, one's grad, but between Roger and Jason as teachers? I'll speak only to teachers.
1: As they were as teachers to me, sure. Because Jason to me was not as broad, mm-hmm. was not covering all of the different things to his undergrad students. He was sure, but I wasn't there at that point. It's 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 hard to it's hard to even to know if this was because of difference between Jason and Roger, or difference because of dif- between uh, you know masters and bachelors my masters was really really focused i mm-hmm. had tons of freedom i remember from roger's plan one of the things that i really love about the way roger's structures an undergrad studio is day 1 freshman year you know what each at that time quarter you're going to be doing you know what you're going to be doing each quarter throughout your whole 4 year degree you know that junior year, quarter two, you're going to dive into excerpts on Glockenspiel and Tambourine. I don't know if that's right. I don't know. <laughs> and so it's, it's very, very regimented. And you don't necessarily have to stay on that path. People do deviate a bit, but it's very much, here's the plan to success. Follow this and you'll be great. Right. Jason, it was, welcome to your master's degree. What do you want to do? I had no idea at that point, sure. um, but I didn't know I, you know, I, I, I went to that school because of their focus on Brazilian music and steel band music. So we did a lot of focus there. Um, we also have played a lot of Indian music. I forgot about that one. So I think, I think there was a lot of, uh, the biggest difference between the two, um, was the individual freedom. And again, Sorry, Roger, if you're listening, you still gave me a lot of individual freedom. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 a different, it's a different in freedom uh, as, as I was starting to create my own plan semester by semester versus following somebody's and fitting into it.
0: When you, when you get to teach for that semester or that year, excuse me, what kinds of things do you realize about the teaching profession in that year? Hmm. And were you having to, like, everyone who knew you as, as, as just Aaron, were, was there like a, hey, hey, settle down, settle down. You were a student just like me. Was there, like, a little bit of that going on?
1: Yeah, there was. that was a really big learning year. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was the beginning, beginning of the end of me <laughs> in academic percussion, but maybe. Um, <laughs> it was hard. All of those things you said were true. Other than the freshman. Uh-huh. They were all my peers. Yeah. Right. Exactly like you said. So they now had to have a really big flip to n- n- now I'm the instructor. Right. Um I tried really hard to not flip the switch into the boss. Mm-hmm. Um it was also interesting <laughs> because at the time, uh the year the summer after I graduated with my master's, and before I started teaching, yeah, I got married. Oh, okay. To somebody in this percussion studio. Oh. We had been together for years at that point, but we we got married that summer, and then I became the instructor, and she was my student. That was hard. Yeah, that was, I would, was I would imagine, <laughs> I had to navigate that in a very, very delicate way. Um, and then the added stress there is that now there's now there's our we all have friends who are our colleagues and students together, and now they're talking to her about me because I have the tie on. Right, um, yeah, it was it was a very unique situation and very delicate. Overall, it, was, it wasn't too, too bad. There were some big friction points with a couple students. Um, you know, one student who, one undergrad student who just did not want to do the thing anymore. You know, in combination of Aaron was my friend and now my boss. And also, I just don't want to do this music school thing like this anymore. So it was, it was just difficult. Um, okay. Another difficult one was a, a master's student, a new master's degree student. Who I had known for six years just personally or so at that point, who was older than me? oh sure that one was really, really hard um, we made through it and we're 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 still great friends now um but it, it was it was we had some difficult moments together a lot of a lot of learning times uh for me a lot, yeah, yeah, learned a lot about the red tape of higher academia. Yeah. Um, I think that's when I first started realizing that um, the career of teaching is maybe 40% teaching. Huh. If that. If that, right. That's a, that's a pretty liberal number there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, lot. there's a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff got to do are you getting that year? Are you getting to play still? Are you still getting, are you still active in that, in that sense, even though you're, you're taking over the teaching responsibilities?
1: Yeah, I was playing a lot. Um, I moved into playing with like the faculty jazz, uh, quintet Mm -hmm. playing vibraphone with them because the steel band was so large. I continued to play with the steel band and, and when Jason was instructed, he played with the steel band too. Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of was, was the thing that set the precedent to make it not feel weird for me to do that. Um, I was playing as a sub with the Owensboro symphony in Kentucky. Okay. Um, yeah. And a, some other gigs here and there. Uh, yeah. Still getting, still getting lots of opportunities to, to play. I think I played a faculty recital. Um, Cause why not take that opportunity to play more stuff?
0: Sure. Yeah. Remind me. I don't know if I've been I'm trying to think if I've been to that part of the state. Where is what's the nearest city? It's a half York? hour south of Lexington. Oh, it's that close that to Lexington.
1: Close. Okay. Yeah, right down the
0: road. Okay. All right, that's gotcha. Yeah. I was trying to think of how close it is to like the western part of West Virginia and Ohio, and southern Ohio.
1: Is so it like where, where like where Ohio University is? Yeah. Um, it's about three and a half hours or so.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because I have in my head like Ashland, but that's like that's on the that's West the Virginia tri- border. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's no, that's Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio. That's the tri-state. Ash- Ashland, South Point, and Huntington. Yes. The little, that little tri-state zone.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So how far are you from those three
1: areas? Uh, about two hours. Okay, that's, that's actually where my ex-wife is from. So we, uh, we, frequent, we frequented the, the trip from South Point, Ohio to, uh, to Richmond, Kentucky.
0: Gotcha. What happens after you finish that year of teaching?
1: Yeah. Um, during that year of teaching, also the summer before I started teaching, I went to uh, Chosenvale, a mm-hmm. seminar that uh, Doug Perkins was running for a few years up in New Hampshire, um had an amazing time there and that's where I met Tim Feeney. Um mm-hmm. we connected really well, had a lot of great conversations, uh you know, about what my next steps were and I was like, okay, I'll see you in a couple months when I audition at Alabama for my doctorate. During that that year of teaching, I I auditioned at Alabama, got accepted. Um they had no assistantship money available at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not in a place to Pay for tuition at the University of Alabama, right? For a doctorate, it yeah. was very, very expensive. Um, as so, an out-of-state student, as an out-of-state student, it was it was really expensive. Yeah. Um, so we had some conversations, Tim and I, and uh, decided that there would there would be money the following academic year. Uh, so I deferred uh, that year um, and just decided, okay, I'm going to take a down year. My ex-wife got a job with Progressive Arts Society, so mm. we, we moved to Indianapolis um, that year after I taught. Yeah, I lived, I lived in Indianapolis for about 10 months or so. Um, teaching high school bands, um, a few in the area, working with Jeff Queen um, when, he was, when he was still over there. Yeah, I taught a lot of front ensembles and just kind of, front ensembles, private lessons, and kicked the tires until it was time to move to Alabama. Uh, yeah, and then that's uh, I think it was uh, then the summer of 2015 that I landed in
0: Tuscaloosa. So you're you're just trying to kind of I guess make it to <laughs> until you can start your doctorate. Is that just the time where you're just like I, I'm just trying to get to the, to <laughs> when I can move? <laughs> yeah, that was that was a weird
1: year. Yeah, um, I bet. here in Indianapolis was really strange because it was you know when I moved to Indianapolis. In like July of 2014, mm-hmm. I knew that a year later I was going to be moving to Tuscaloosa. Yeah. It was, it was already written. Lids. You know the hat store? Yeah, like yeah. The mall. I worked at the Lids Warehouse for a year. Oh, okay. Uh, I did that, taught marching band, and it was just like, is it time yeah. to move to Alabama yet? No. Yeah. Fi- finally made the move on, on a 110-degree day in July. Of course. Awful. Awesome. <laughs> well,
0: what's got to be – one of the things I was thinking about for you for that year has to be that it's like when you, when you be working in the high schools, for example, or if you're teaching private lessons, you are already basically like, listen, I'm not going to be here. Like you, I, you, even if you want to keep studying with me, like I, I'm, I'm not going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> and that's got to be really hard to just try to even just get some footing like personally. Yeah. I was really
1: lucky. The two high schools that I taught, taught with in Indianapolis, I was stepping onto a very established team. Mm, I gotcha. i not trying to toot my own horn or pat myself okay. on the back too much. You know, Jeff, Jeff Queens, a pretty, pretty notable name in marching, marching percussion, yeah. uh, especially in Indianapolis when he was still living there, teaching at Avon. Yeah. Um, or I'm sorry, at Carmel. Um, Sorry, Jeff. Um, <laughs> um, when I, uh, you know, I, I saw, I ran into him. Um, I'd known him for a few years from studying. He, he's good friends with Jason. So I'd known him from studying at Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. Um, I ran into him uh, like DCI finals weekend when I was living there. And I said, Hey, I'm living in Indianapolis now. And I'm looking for some front ensemble teaching job. And he said, Oh, give me your number right now. And I gave him my number. And three days later, I was working for him and another high school. And at that time, the kids really noticed that. Um, and the kids were like, oh, Jeff Queen sent you? Cool. And they were they were excited. And um, yeah. it was a really lucky situation. Um, I know that, yeah, could it could have been much harder. Um, but I had a really, really good relationship with all my students for that year I was there.
0: Oh, that's awesome!
1: It's actually interesting. Look, I think think back on the relationship I had with those students. Um, it definitely feels like it was more than a year.
0: Mm.
1: One season, it, it, nah. It feels like it was at least two or three.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. Well, I mean, it's good. It sounds like you that that went as well as it probably could have. It really, it really did. Um, it it could have been a
1: a much harder year. But it, it wasn't. It was. It was a weird year to be kind of just in that liminal space. Um, yeah. But it went pretty well.
0: And we'll get to part two with Aaron Levy next week. So stay tuned. This week's rave is a live concert event and follow-up reading session featuring the Maria Schneider Orchestra, a group that came to campus this past Sunday and Monday. I've gotten the chance to talk about some of the jazz artists that have come through Columbia, Missouri over the years in this segment. They are usually part of the We Always Swing jazz series that has been going on in town for the past 30 years. It's always impressive to get to hear major groups come through our city and perform. Apparently, Getting the Maria Schneider Orchestra here was a major feat, which involved not only the jazz series, but also funding through our school's new music initiative. And I'll tell you right now, it was totally worth it. I will say that I was mostly aware of Maria Schneider by name, but not through her music. I had not seen nor heard her group perform, but I was told by pretty much everyone around here that we needed to go. So my wife and I got tickets to do so, And it was incredible. If you've not heard Maria's group perform, well, that's likely because you haven't gotten to see it. Maria is well-known in recording circles for keeping a tight lid on her music and has made it available only through her website and other controlled sources. She makes it very clear in her concerts and with her works. She's not a fan of big data or the algorithm, and she's written music about it. All of this to say, to hear her music, you probably have to see her music. It's a bit hard to describe the musical experience of her work. The instrumentation is big band, with an accordion player added, but much resemblance to standard big band literature ends there. Instead, it felt much more like a mixture of big band, new music ensemble, orchestral music, movie music, and a combination of all those. And unusually for a big band, Maria Schneider conducts the group throughout, also moves around a lot, gets very involved in guiding the group, and is incredibly demonstrative. There's the old adage of how you can tell someone's really into the music they're performing. That is definitely the case for Maria Schneider. All of her performers are professionals, many of them teachers, and they played for about 100 minutes with no intermission. The music had a lot of depth and unusual sounds for the big band orchestration, but it all made sense, and it was incredibly enjoyable. The next afternoon, her group was involved in masterclasses and recording sessions, and I was able to catch some of their combined rehearsal with Mizzou's top jazz ensemble, the Concert Jazz Band. This was also outstanding. The group was set up in a large circle, with Maria's group in every other seat and every member of the section with their corresponding section member in the other group. The top ensemble played one of Maria's selections very well. Then her group crushed the same piece, and they traded off soloists and talked about the performances and tips and performance etiquette, all of that, and it was really impressive. And it was also great because up close, you could just see these players, you watch them the big stage, play amazing solos, and showcase their ability and ease of performance right in front of you. In conclusion, if Maria Schneider's orchestra comes to town, you have to, repeat, have to go see her and her group. It is well worth your time and incredibly inspirational. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Aaron Levy. Until then.